0: SECTION 17 OF PANTROPHION This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. PANTROPHION BY ALEXIS Sawyer. SECTION 17 POULTRY The air is less dense than the earth, said Aristotle. Poultry ought then to stand higher in estimation than quadrupeds. It is, adds Galen, the lightest and best of all elements. After this, would any one dare to accuse of sensuality those who, wisely following the diet recommended by these great men, prefer a fat capon or delicate fowl to a heavy, common butcher's meat? Our masters, the ancients, have left us fine examples on this head. In vain did impertinent sumptuary laws, enemies of progress, strive to repress the luxury of the farmyards. These precautions on behalf of abstinence against the magiric genius were increasingly met by a resistance as energetic as it was truly Roman. Fannius, Arcius, Cornelius could make martyrs, But let us say with pride, good cheer never had cause to envy them deserters and apostates. One of these tyrannical decrees was just published. A tribune of the people, a man of heart and taste, undertook to have it repealed. He courageously mounted the rostrum and cried with an inspired voice, Romans, you are treated like slaves. By the gods, what can be more strange than the new law? they would force you to sobriety whether you will or no they would impose temperance on you ah renounce this pretended liberty of which you are so jealous since you are no longer allowed to ruin yourself each one according to his fancy or die of indigestion if you please this discourse was received as it deserved to be and unanimous applause proved to the orator that he was addressing men capable of understanding him but alas this excellent tribune had a dangerous enemy the censor lucius flaccus a sort of fanatic teetoler and conophobus of that time had sufficient credit to cause this worthy citizen to be driven from the senate but rome revenged him by devouring more poultry than ever in the early ages of the church poultry in general was regarded as a food for fast days and this opinion was founded on the text in Genesis, where it is said that birds and fishes were created on the fifth day, whereas quadrupeds were created on the sixth. St. Benedict, in his rule, does not formally forbid the monks any other flesh than that of quadrupeds, and in St. Columbanus, in his, permits the monks the flesh of poultry in default of fish. The Greek monks ate it down to the 10th century, The cock. An object of divine worship in Syria, the cock was considered by almost every nation as the emblem of vigilance and courage. Thus, heathen antiquity consecrated it to the god of battles. Themistocles, marching with his men against Xerxes, king of Persia, met with some cocks fighting furiously. He made his troops halt, that they might observe them, and he then addressed a spirited discourse to them on the subject. He conquered, and on his return to Athens desired that every year a cockfight should commemorate his victory. These cruel games soon spread throughout Greece, and feathered champions were reared with great care and obtained at a high price from Rhodes, Boeotia, Mila, and Chalcis. Italy also wished to enjoy this barbarous pastime. At Pergamus, any spectator might throw a cock into the arena, and a prize was awarded to the lucky possessor of the bird who remained master of the field of battle. This warlike bird has never enjoyed a high culinary reputation. Nevertheless, it was eaten when old, that is to say, at that period of its life when its flesh, hard, fibrous, and tough, possesses neither juice nor flavor, then this wretched food was left to those among the common people who joyously feasted in the drinking shops of Rome. They, however, always avoided making fricassees of white cocks because they were consecrated to the month and proclaimed the hours. The capon. The cock being banished from the table of all respectable people, the necessity of dressing hens became evident, for it was necessary to live now you are aware that there are two sorts of hens one sort of consumptive looking and tough the other tender plump and before which an epicure banishes every other thought and sighs with pleasure these last were preferred and in order to render them more worthy of the voluptuous epicures for whom they were intended they learned from the inhabitants of the island of cos the art of fattening them in dark and closed places with certain wonderful pastes which increased their delicacy and tempting whiteness this ingenious invention belonged to greece and asia rome possessed herself of it and even improved it but soon the constant tyrant of the kitchen the consul c fannius who thought bad what others thought good and who pretended that in consequence of the immense consumption made of them The result would be that not a living hen would be left in the empire, ordered that for the future the Romans should dispense with fattening and eating this delicious winged animal. Fortunately, the law said nothing about young cocks. This silence saved Roman gastronomy, and the capon was invented. It is not necessary to relate with what transports of delight this new creation was greeted. It will be easily understood. Rome was moved. The famous Greek cooks, who consecrated their science to her, were on tiptoe. Everywhere, from mouth to mouth, spread the name of the skilful enchanter, who could in such a manner metamorphose the clarion of the farmyard. Fannius himself, it is said, wished to be assured of the truth of the prodigy. He was served with a roast capon, and the praises he bestowed on it were assuredly the triumph of the bird, of epicures, and of art. From this remarkable epoch, nearly all chickens underwent the ingenious transformation which rendered them so welcome to all lucullan tables, and it caused such a destruction of birds that the consul repented, but too late, that he had only named hens in his sumptuary law. Capon a la deliac draw completely a fat capon, then bruise pepper, alisander, and ginger, which you must mix with sausage meat and fine flour, and a pig's brains cooked. Add some eggs, then some garum, a little oil, whole pepper, and several pine nuts. Make a stuffing of this mixture, and put it into the capon, which afterwards roasts before a slow fire. The hen. The cackling of hens, infallibly announced among the ancients, some dreadful calamity to the person who had the misfortune to hear it this fatal omen must have rendered a great number of people unfortunate for whether she lays eggs or conducts her young family a hen generally cackles they therefore sought to diminish the number of these birds of ill omen they fattened them for eating and they did right since according to learned physicians the flesh of these birds is good for weakly persons, as well as those who are convalescents. Healthy individuals also find this food soothe them perfectly. In Greece, there would have been something wanting at a feast if fat hens had not been served. They embellished the celebrated wedding repast of Caranus, and Athenus often speaks of them when describing a grand banquet. At Rome, the art of fattening them became a serious occupation which was long studied and had its precepts and rules. Marcus Lolius belonging to the Order of Knights, invented aviaries in which hens were confined. Others sought and discovered the means of giving to their flesh that particular flavor unperceived by uncultivated palates, but which the experienced gastrophilist always appreciates. They patiently gave themselves up to laborious experiments. A warm, narrow, dark spot received three interesting volatiles. The feathers of their wings and tails were plucked, and they were gorged twice a day during three weeks with balls of barley flour mixed with soft water. Great cleanliness was combined with this diet. Their heads were well cleansed and care taken that no insect should enter the aviary. Afterwards, barley flour kneaded with milk was preferred, then, instead of milk, water, and honey were employed. Excellent wheaten bread, soaked in good wine, and hydromel was also used with success. Skillful breeders, by these means, obtained magnificent hens of an incredibly exquisite flavor, and which weighed no less than 16 pounds. The Fannian law, unfortunately, came and, as we have before observed, brought impediments to these beautiful results by interdicting aviaries and skillfully preparing pastes. It is true that this law allowed a farmyard hen to be served at every repast. Mais une poule par jour et sous contrement, it became necessary, then, to have recourse to a mesotermine which was discovered in the capon, But the favorite dish forbidden by the consular authority was not altogether abandoned. Some faithful Epicureans always possessed in the shade well-furnished aviaries, and it was even then we are assured that Rome and the universe were enriched with the Poulard. Poulard à la Viminal, cook a fine hen in its gravy, pound and mix benzoin pepper, oil, and garum, a little thyme, fennel seed, cumin, mint, and rue. Stir for a long time, add some vinegar, pound some dates, and mix them with honey and a little vinegar. All of this makes a homogeneous seasoning, and pour it on the hen when it is cold. The chicken. It is certainly surprising that a people so serious as the Romans generally were should make the success of the greatest enterprise depend on the appetite of their famous sacred chickens. They were brought from the island of Negropont and were kept shut up in cages. Their guardian was designated by the name of Polarius. Publius Claudius, constrained to consult these strange prophets before engaging in a naval combat, ordered them to be fed. They refused to open their beaks. The incredulous general ordered them at once to be thrown into the sea, and laughingly exclaimed to the dismayed Polarius, Since they will not eat, well, then let us make them drink. Diodorus of Sicily and some ancient writers tell us that the Egyptians, from a remote period, hatched chickens in ovens. This process is decidedly of the highest antiquity, and was applied to the eggs of all kinds of poultry. In the last century, Reamur tried various experiments and recovered this art, which was thought to have been lost. Others again have followed the steps of this skillful observer, and at the present day obtained the most satisfactory results. Chickens have ever been considered an estimable food, and hardly yielded to the two glories of their family, the fattened hen and the capon. The Greeks served them at all their feasts of ceremony, and the Romans granted them a distinguished place among the dishes of the second course. Episian Macedonia of Chicken. Chop small the meat of a chicken, which mix with a kid's breast, and put it into the saucepan with parsley seed, dried pennyroyal, dried mint, ginger, green coriander, and raisins. Then add three pieces of the finest oaten bread some honey, vinegar, oil, and wine. Sometime after, add some excellent cheese, pine nuts, cucumbers, and dried onions well chopped. Pour some gravy over the whole, and when it is cooked, surround the dish on all sides with snow and serve. Parthian chicken. Open the croup dexterously and put it in the saucepan. Then mix some pepper, alisander, a little carrot, garum, and wine. Fill the chicken with this seasoning, cook well, and sprinkle with pepper before serving. Numidian Chicken Begin by boiling a chicken for some time, then place it in a stew pan. After having sprinkled it with benzoin and pepper, afterwards, brew some pepper, cumin, coriander seed, benzoin root, pine nuts, rue, and dates. Add honey, vinegar, garum, and oil. Boil, thicken with fine flour, sprinkle with pepper, and serve. Chicken, a la frontonienne. Half cook a chicken and then put it into the saucepan, garum, oil, a bunch of dill, some leeks, winter savory, and green coriander. You then sprinkle with pepper and serve. Chicken, a la colline. Cook a chicken with garum, oil, wine, coriander seed, and onion. Then put some milk and a little salt into another saucepan with honey and a little water and cook this mixture over a very slow fire. Throw in by degrees some raspings of sweet biscuits and take care to stir continually. Put the chicken into this sauce and then serve with a seasoning of pepper, alisander, and wild marjoram mixed with honey and cooked vine which must be boiled and thickened with fine flour the duck the duck swims so well it was thought to be paying a compliment to neptune by sacrificing it to him the god of the seas never found fault with this offering attica and the whole of greece sought the beautiful ducks of boeotia and that province was always found to have supplied a larger number than it reared it is true the poulterers of athens banishing all scruples of conscience, rarely failed to satisfy their customers as to the doubtful origin of a white Nessa duck by taking Neptune to witness that it was a pure Boeotian, a real duck, as they say emphatically, of that species so much appreciated by connoisseurs. Future quidnuncs will examine whether the friendly duck of the English and the political and literary canard of the French have or have not found their way from Greece after wandering a little on the road. There were ducks at that prodigious dinner of the opulent Caranus, of whom we have already spoken several times. They were always served at the tables of the rich Greeks, and Archidines reckons among them the viands which agree best with the stomach, cato was of the same opinion and if we are to believe plutarch he made them the food of those of his family who were ill and boasted of maintaining his children servants and himself in perfect health by the aid of this diet alone it was the same idea that made mithridates mix the flesh of ducks with all he ate as an antidote against poison which he feared hippocrates evinces a contrary opinion the flesh of this bird seemed to him hard heavy and indigestible avicenna goes still further he threatens all who eat it with fever the romans were no more frightened than the greeks at the decision of the father of medicine lentulus one of the high magiric authorities of rome ordered that the duck should figure in the most honourable manner at the brilliant feast Of which macrobius has preserved us an account it must however be remembered that polite people who observe the forms and usages of society only offered to their guests the breast and head of this biped the remainder returned to the kitchen ducks brains a la epicureen cook some ducks brains and mince them very small then place in a saucepan with pepper, cumin, benzoin root, garum, sweet wine, and oil. Add milk and eggs, and submit the whole to the action of a slow fire, or rather, cook them in a bain-marie. Apicius's Seasoning for a Roasted Duck Make a mixture of pepper, cumin, alisander, mint, stoned raisins, or Damascus plums. Add a little honey and myrtle wine, place it in a saucepan, cook, and then add to these substances vinegar, garum, and oil. Afterwards, some parsley and savory. Serve with the roast duck. THE GOOSE When a flock of geese are obliged to pass Mount Taurus, the dreaded abode of their enemies, the eagles, each of them takes the precaution to hold a stone in its beak in order that he may keep a profound silence which otherwise his natural loquacity would render impossible. This, if true, would justify Aristotle in attributing foresight to the goose, a quality which Scaliger also claims for this bird. The ancients highly esteemed its flesh. Homer and Athenius speak with praise of the fat geese and goslings which the Greeks ate. The Egyptians served them at their meals every day it was with veal the favorite dish of their monarchs and they did not forget to offer some to king agasilius when he was traveling through the country some eastern nations were impressed with such deep veneration for this bird that they swore by nothing else the britons honored it and forbade all persons to do it the least harm it remained for queen elizabeth to prove at her joyous dinners of the twenty ninth september that tastes and usages are modified by time and moreover many centuries before her ancestors had been greatly wanting in respect towards a particular kind of goose which they roasted without any ceremony a well-deserved sentiment of gratitude rendered them dear to the romans their noisy clamour had formerly saved the capital they became for them as for the egyptians a symbol of safety and were reared both in town and country to guard the houses. Those which were kept out of gratitude in the capital were consecrated to Juno, Isis, Mars, and Priapus, and every year one of them was chosen for the brilliant and solemn ceremony we have already mentioned. But alas, time obscures and effaces all the glories of this world, and that of the Roman geese no doubt had to submit to this sad fate, for they were eaten at least a century before the time of Pliny. Unfortunate bird. Yes, a perfidious art fed them delicately in the shade in convenient aviaries, where nothing was wanting for their comfort. And at the end of a few days, the poor victims made but one step from this dangerous retreat to the place of execution. The emperor, Alexander Severus, became so fond of this dish that on his great festival days they served him with a goose and a pheasant nothing in his estimation could equal the exquisite flavor of these two birds the luxurious romans however neglected the entire animal and thought only of the liver they invented the art of fattening this viscera and of increasing its size to such an extent that it often weighed two pounds to obtain this result they simply fed their victims of sensuality during 20 days, with a paste of dried figs and water. As soon as the goose was killed, the liver was put to soak in milk and honey. It is not known exactly to whom we are to attribute this gastronomic discovery. Scipio, Metellus, and Marcus Sages disputed the glory of the invention. At all events, it is certain that the same method was used in Greece as in Italy, that white geese were chosen in preference and that the fat livers were served roasted or fried in the frying pan and enveloped in the omentum, a membrane which we term the call. Pliny assures us that Apicius found means to increase livers to a monstrous size, which almost equaled in weight the whole body of the animal. The wings and neck of the goose also acquired some flavor. The feet were added, when Messalinus had taught how to peel them by passing them rapidly over the fire and then preparing them with combs, The remainder was only good for the common people. Stuffed goslings also enjoyed a reputation among the Greeks, who fattened them by giving them three times a day, during a month, a mixture of bran and flour, moistened with hot water, two parts of flour and four parts of bran. But, if Palladius is to be believed, it is much better to feed them solely with millet and as much water as they may require sages seasoning bruise pepper alisander coriander mint and rue mix with it garum and a little oil pour it over the roast goose and serve apician seasoning for a roast goose's liver crush in a mortar and then well mix pepper carrots cumin parsley seed thyme onions benzoin root and fried pine nuts add honey vinegar garum and oil and serve with the roast liver in the omentum boiled goose a la garoise boil a goose with garum oil wine a bunch of leeks coriander and savory then crush pepper and pine nuts to which put a little water then take the leeks coriander and savory out of the saucepan put in their place the mixture mentioned add some milk, boil it, thicken with whites of eggs, and serve. In the 16th century, they had dark cages in which they fattened poultry with ground tares, wheaten flour, and barley meal. Capons, fattened in hutches, where they could not turn nor even stir, were esteemed delicious. They fed pigeons on the crumb of bread steeped in wine, peacocks on the sediment from cider. On Michaelmas Day, the twenty ninth of September, many persons in England eat roast goose for their dinner. It is said that this custom dates from the time of Queen Elizabeth, who was being served with a piece of goose on Michaelmas Day at the very moment when news was brought of the defeat of the famous Armada. Some persons affirm that the Queen expressed a desire that this dish might each year serve to perpetuate the remembrance of so signal a victory would it not be more simple to suppose that elizabeth herself already conformed to a custom which had existed before her time at man's instead of letting the poultry eat freely they are shut up in a dark place and made to swallow pellets of about two inches long and one thick composed of two parts of barley flour and one of maize made with sufficient quantity of milk in the time when the french had a decided taste for spices and aromatics, they imagined to vary at will the flavor and perfume of the flesh of fowls. With the paste used to fatten them was mixed musk, anise seed, and comfits with other aromatic drugs. A queen was known to spend 1,500 francs, 60 pounds, in fattening three geese whose livers she wished to render more delicate. Parmentier The Pigeon The Dove, a bird so dear to Venus, served Ambrosia to Jupiter and became the interpreter of Dodona's oracles. Several nations consecrated it to their gods. The Jews discovered it in the image of the sweetest virtues, of beauty, innocence, and purity, and they sacrificed it to the Almighty as a burnt offering agreeable to His unspeakable holiness. This was because the Dove or Pigeon begging pardon here for mixing varieties, is to the hawk, according to an expression of a father of the church, what the lamb is to the wolf, a symbol of good by the side of evil, or of a calm and peaceful conscience, as opposed to the sad and agitated criminal. But alas, the ancient prerogatives of this tender bird, its candor and innocence, could not even preserve it from the fate common to almost everything which breathes its delicate flesh, fatal gift of heaven, recommended it to the epicure not for its poetical qualities but for its delicate flavor, and after many songs of praise it was condemned to be roasted. From the beginning of the heroic ages, pigeons were caught with snares and nets in order to feed them and be able to procure some at once, if required to be served at a repast for they formed a dainty dish upon the tables of the most fastidious. Of course, they figured in the joyous wedding feast of that opulent Carinus who entertained his guests so sumptuously. The Greeks, therefore, used to bring up an immense number of pigeons and built for them, in the most open situations, charming pigeon-houses in the form of small towers, models of elegance and cleanliness, where those timid birds found at night a retreat always fatal to some one amongst them the romans introduced in these sorts of edifices the most unusual luxury each kind of pigeon had a particular home a foolish and expensive taste which they continually attempted to embellish it was however a profitable speculation For those who knew how to be satisfied with pigeon houses of more simple appearance, a brace of rather ordinary pigeons did not cost less than 16 S. The finest were sold at four pounds a pair. It is even known that L. Axius, a Roman knight, demanded and obtained six pound eight shillings for two young pigeons intended for a patrician's table. Physicians of that period greatly praised the flesh of these birds. They recommended it to the sick and the convalescent. Roast pigeon with servilian seasoning. Bruise some dill seeds, dried mint, and the root of benzoin. Add some vinegar, dates, garum, a little mustard, and oil. Stir well, then mix with it some wine reduced to half, and pour the whole on the roasted pigeon. The guinea hen this bird called by the ancients the hen of numidia comes originally from many burning regions of africa in greece and especially in rome vanity alone gave it a price which was willingly granted more on account of its scarcity than for its taste the guinea hen appeared at great banquets when the amphitryon was more anxious to show his opulence than to demonstrate the delicacy of his dish Marshall and Pliny, the naturalist, raise great objections against this ostentatious and useless rarity. Guinea hen, a la numid. Cook it, then put it in a saucepan with some honey and garum, make several incisions in the bird, baste it with its own gravy, and sprinkle with pepper previously to its being served. The turkey hen. There must be two to eat a truffled turkey, said a gastronomist of the 18th century to one of his friends, a noted gourmand who had just come to pay him a visit. Two, replied the visitor, with a smile of sensuality. Yes, two, answered the first. I never do otherwise. For instance, I have a turkey today, and of course we must be two. The friend, looking earnestly at the other, said, You and who else? why answered the gastronomist i and the turkey in greece more than one stomach would have been capable of challenging nobly the veracity of this modern polyphagus witnessed the insatiable greediness of the well-known glutton who complained that nature ought to have given him a neck as long as the stork that he might enjoy for a longer period his eating and drinking but for a long time The Greeks were quite ignorant of the culinary value of the turkey. It was looked upon as an uncommon curiosity and not condemned to the spit. Sophocles, the first who spoke of it, pretended that those marvelous birds came purposely from some distant climate beyond the Indies to bewail the death of Meleager, who took possession of the throne of Macedonia, 279 years B.C., and who was soon driven from it. This prince, it is reported, carried them away from barbarous regions that they might enjoy the charms of Greek civilization, and hence could there be anything more natural than to find those compassionate volatiles shedding tears for their benefactor in one of Sophocles' tragedies? They have been called, since, Meligrides, and this name perpetuated misfortune, favor, and gratitude. Aristotle hardly supplies us with any details upon turkey hens. He merely says that their eggs are distinguished by little specks from those of the common hens, which are white. But Clitus of Miletus, his disciple, gives us an exact description of them, by which no mistake can be made. Egypt also possessed some of these birds. But there they were still more rare than in Greece, and formed one of the principal ornaments in the triumphal pomp of Ptolemy Philadelphus when he entered Alexandria. Large cages containing meliagrids, were carried before the monarch, and on that day the people knew not which to admire most, the prince or the turkey. They were introduced into Rome about the year 115 before our era, But for a long time they were objects of uncommon curiosity, and Varro, the first of the Latins who speaks of them, confounds these birds with the guinea hens or hens of Numidia. A century later, turkeys greatly multiplied and vast numbers were reared in the Roman farms. Caligula, who had the good sense to make his own apotheosis during his lifetime, through fear lest it might be refused after his death, ordered a sacrifice of peacocks, guinea-hens, and turkeys to be made daily before his statue. It appears, however, that the breed of turkeys soon began to diminish in Europe. Very few were reared, and that only as a curiosity. In the citadel of Athens toward the year 540 of the Christian era, and in 1510, two were exhibited in Rome, which belonged to the cardinal of St. Clement, Jacques Brought some Meliagrades from India in 1450. They were the first ever seen in France, and it was not till 54 years afterwards that Americus Vespucius made them known to the Portuguese. In our days, these ancient inhabitants of Asia or America have become naturalized among us, and let us hope that the day is yet distant. When they will be absentees from our farmyards at our tables, we admire them less perhaps than Charles the Ninth did when a turkey was served to him for the first time. But we shall always receive with cheerfulness the majestic dish upon which appears a well-fed turkey truffled and smoking hot Turkey a la African. roast a turkey, brew some pepper, alisander, and benzoin. Mix it with wine and garum, pour this seasoning on the turkey, sprinkle with pepper, and serve. The historian of Provence, Bouche, will have it that the French are indebted for the turkey to King Rene, who died in fourteen eighty. Other writers assure us that this volatile was introduced during the reign of Francis I by Admiral Chaubert. La bruyere Chantier speaks of it as a recent acquisition and Beckmann refutes those who date its existence in France previous to the 16th century. He says that this bird, which was wild in the forests of America, became domesticated in Europe. It is also said that we owe the importation of it to the Jesuits. According to her it was not until the time of Charles IX that turkeys appeared in France. It is asserted adds this author that at the wedding dinner of that prince the first turkey was served and that it was admired as a very extraordinary thing. The English tasted this new dish in 1525, the 15th year of the reign of Henry VIII. To fatten turkeys every morning for a month, give them mashed potatoes mixed with buckwheat flour, Indian corn, barley, or beans. A paste is made of it, which they are left to eat as they please. Every evening what remains must be taken away. One month after, you add to this food, when they go to roost, half a dozen balls composed of barley flour, which they are made to swallow for eight days successively. At the end of that time, turkeys thus fed become excessively fat, delicious, and weigh from 20 to 25 pounds. In Provence, walnuts are given to them whole, which they are compelled to swallow by slipping them one by one with the hand along the neck until they have all passed the esophagus. They begin with one walnut and increase by degrees to 40. This kind of food gives an oily taste to the flesh. Turkey eggs are good boiled and are preferred to those of hens for pastry. Mixing them with a common egg makes an omelet more delicate. To obtain all the advantages possible from turkeys, they must be killed at the same time as pigs, then cut the turkeys in quarters and put them in earthen pots covered over with the fat of the pork, and by this means they may be eaten all the year round. Farmentier The Peacock The Peacock comes originally from India. It was there that Alexander the Great saw it for the first time. He was so struck with its magnificent plumage that he forbade all persons under pain of death to kill any oriental princes kept the peacocks which travelers brought them from time to time in their aviaries it was thus that a certain king of egypt received one of which he thought jupiter alone worthy wherefore he sent it in great pomp to the temple of that god These birds were thus known over various parts of the world. Samos, which seems to have been provided one of the first, ornamented its money with their image. Their reputation soon spread far and wide, and Athenian speculators sent to that island for peacocks, which were shown to the curious once a month. This variety became afterwards an article of commerce, and all wealthy people became desirous to have them a male and female cost eight pounds sterling but what was that when delighted eyes could contemplate the charming and lovely colors of the haughty favorite of juno at rome the peacock had a prodigious success when alive the romans praised its beauty when dead it appeared on the tables of its enthusiastic admirers quintus hortensius the orator was the first who had them served in a banquet given by him on the occasion of being created an augur this gastronomic novelty made an extraordinary sensation at rome as might be expected and the peacock became so much in fashion that no banquet could possibly be given unless it was embellished by its presence marcus alphidius livio was the first to contrive a sure way to fatten them and he succeeded so well That he made prodigious sums every year by the sale of those birds horace preferred them to the finest poultry and distinguished amateurs thought that it was not paying much of a young peacock if they could get it for two pounds and three shillings the ridiculous consumption which was made of these birds did not allow of their becoming very common tiberius reared some in his garden and he condemned to capital punishment a soldier of his guards who had the misfortune to kill one ultimately more savory or more rare dishes took the place of peacocks flesh which then began to be thought hard unwholesome and of difficult digestion however it reappeared in the middle ages at the nuptial festivities of the rich where one of these birds was served as if alive with the beak and claws gilded to do that well it was necessary to skin the bird very carefully and then cook it with aromatics such as cinnamon cloves and cumin it was then covered with its skin and feathers and served without any appearance of having been stripped this luxury was to gratify the sight nobody touched it the peacock was thus preserved for several years without being damaged a property believed to be peculiar to its flesh but which was owing no doubt to the aromatics just mentioned. Peacock of Samos. Mix some pepper, alisander, parsley, dill flowers, dried mint, and filberts, or fried almonds. Bruise them with green smallage and pennyroyal, and mix the whole with wine, honey, vinegar, and garum. Make incisions in the bird and cover it with this seasoning. End of section 17, recorded by Sheila Blunt.